This is Skip Federico. On February 11, 2018, I sat down with my father and his siblings for the purpose of recording some family history and stories. This was a fun project, but also a challenging one. It was my first time interviewing anyone and my first attempt at working multi-track audio recording and editing equipment. Since then, I've learned quite a bit and look forward to my next attempt. Even still, for my first attempt, I'm fairly pleased with the result. I hope you are as well. My name is Patricia Federico Bryan. I was born in Federico in New Orleans. My parents were Rosemary and Lawrence Federico. I was born January 21st, 1945. A.K.A. Patricia Ann. At uh, Hotel Du. Okay. All right. Very good. Wow. Okay, I'm Lawrence Joseph Federico Jr. That's the name I've used all my life. But if I look at my birth certificate, there's no junior on it. Uh, I was born September 27, 1942, to Lawrence and Rosemary Federico, also at Hotel Du. All right. Uncle? Lynn, John, Federico. Uh, Larry and I are twins. We were born September 27, 1942. He's 18 years my senior. 18 minutes, my senior. <laughs> See? Correcting this. All right, just, uh, just for the record, who else do we have around the table here? My name is Lawrence Joseph Federico III, commonly referred to as Skip. Born January 12, 1971, to Lawrence Federico and Babs Myheffer Federico at Baptist Hospital in New Orleans. Teresa Federico, wife of John, Lynn John Federico. <laughs> Maiden name? McNeil. I'm Charles Terry Bryan. I'm the boyfriend and husband of Patricia Ann Federico Bryan, born December 1, 1943. I guess that's it. Okay. We're going to be focusing most of our conversation, at least initially, on my grandfather, Lawrence Federico. And Pat, what's your memory of your father? Was he sick? Oh, he, he, would, he had had a stroke about 18 months before he died. He died, January, he died June 20th, 1980. Where did, where did he die? In his house. And he was uh, found in the bathroom of the house. My mother had gone to Schwegman's that morning to go shopping. And when she got home, she found him lying on the floor of the bathroom. And I'm not sure, but I think the official cause of death was heart attack, but I'm not sure about that. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your father. He had been retired since sometime in the 1940s. Prior to that, he had been in the bakery business with his brothers. He had been in the Marine Corps when World War, when after, right after Pearl Harbor. He enlisted in the Marines, and before that, he was in the macaroni manufacturing business with his brothers, and his, his father, I think, had established that business. I th he went to Warren Houston High School. He played football there. He was part of the team that won the state championship, and. And I'm not sure whether it was 21, 22, somewhere in that area. And I think he went to Tulane for half a semester. He was taking up dentistry, but he didn't like it, so he left that then and married my mother in, in 1941, I think, or 40, early 42, I think, I think is when they got married. Do you know how your parents come to meet? Well, I, I had heard that Daddy was living in the house on, on Canal Boulevard. And he may have been living there with his sister. I'm not sure. But anyway, they had weekly card games, Canasta or otherwise. I, I, I don't know. I think he played bridge, too. But uh, they needed somebody to fill in at a game. And one of the people that he played with invited my mother. And that's how they met. In, in that's my understanding of it. What was your father's relationship with your mother like? How did they get along? 
I, I fairly well. My father was, a, I'd say, stoic. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd say. He was stoic. Yeah. He was a he was a good man, but and he did well by his family. But I don't think they had um, a lot of uh, um, I don't know how to say that. All right, Pop. What's your memories of your father? Well, to finish the thought that Pat was making, uh, they were a typical married couple. I don't think it was a great romantic relationship, but they got along reasonably well and really cared for each other. Uh, my mother was a very loving, nurturing person. My father, as Pat said, was kind of stoic and distant, and uh, he was hard to really get close to sometimes. He often expressed the opinion that children should be seen and not heard. And uh, were, you, were your parents close in age? Uh, no. My daddy was older than my mother by uh, about 16 years. <clears throat> My daddy had that stroke about a year and a half before he died, and uh, I got closer to him after the stroke than, uh, uh, than before. I used to go over about three times a week, and I think John went two or three times a week and shave him because he didn't like to have a beard, and he couldn't shave himself after he had the stroke. And uh, so he was always very thankful and appreciative of me doing that, and it's one of the things I really remember that meant a lot to me, and uh, I was very glad I was able to do that for him. What, what type of things prior to the stroke he spent his time on? Well, he would spend some time with us. Uh, sometimes he would take us fishing. Uh, we'd go down to Port Sulphur and fish with my Uncle Vincent, which I dearly loved. He would also take us over to the city park and, and have us fish in the lagoons with an incredible lack of success. <laughs> Uh, we had an old bait casting rod with a steel rod. We'd throw a, a wooden plug out into the lagoon. It was a red and white plug with two treble hooks on it. And they'd say, now don't move it, the fish will come and get it. And the fish would splash across the way and, and want to move to where the fish was. They'd say, no, no, that fish has got a head and a tail. He's going to come over here. But that never did happen. I never remember catching a fish in a city park with him. <laughs> but I think he did it mainly to give my mother some peace and quiet. <laughs> I don't recall a lot of stories about your father fishing. Was he a big fisherman? No. No, he, he did it, I think, because it gave him an opportunity to spend some time with his brother. And I think he did it because uh, I enjoyed it, and I think John enjoyed it. And uh, we'd go down to uh, Port Sulphur and go out into the lakes and the bayous, and sometimes we'd stay at a camp down there named Captain Jones Camp and you could catch speckled trout in front of the camp or off a point off to your left and uh, we often did that. Uh, there were also skiffs, there were no motors, we had to row the skiffs but that was no problem for you know healthy young guys and uh, one of the things I remember is he and I took a skiff and rowed uh, oh probably a couple of hundred yards to a camp that was a short distance from Captain John's that was called Kuzma's Camp. And he and I sat there and caught sheephead and drumfish. And we caught a whole boatload of them. And we went back and, and cleaned the fish and he cleaned some and I cleaned some. I guess I was a teenager at that time. And uh, in the process of cleaning sheephead, they have very sharp fins and it's normal to get cuts and such on your hands. And uh, his cuts would not heal. And so eventually he went to the doctor and that's how he found out he had diabetes because the cuts on his hand wouldn't heal. Yeah. After that he had to watch his sugar intake, didn't have all the modern uh, detection devices they had today. What he had to do every day was go and pee on a special little uh, stick. And if the stick turned purple he had too much sugar and he had to be very careful about his diet that day. And if it didn't turn purple he could eat a relatively normal diet. He avoided most sugars. He would eat some diet bread and uh, he would eat some fruit. But aside from that, he tried to avoid eating a lot of sugar, even when uh, 
even when the stick was okay, when he wasn't showing high sugar on the stick. But uh, I remember my daddy as being kind of stern disciplinarian. If I was going to get my ass beat, it was always my daddy that did it. I'm not going to say he ever did it when I didn't deserve it. I deserved it every time, and I probably deserved it a few times he didn't catch me. But, but if there was any corporal punishment, he was the one that administered it. What would you say your relationship with your father was like? It was good. Okay. It was good, yeah. I loved my father. All right, uh, Uncle John. I, Tell me a little bit about your father. Well, I remember Daddy as also being a very stern disciplinarian. In most cases, uh, we deserved a lot more than we ever got. And in truth, I, I'll tell you this, I feel like it was my mother who intervened on our behalf. And whatever punishment we did get, it was reduced or modified because she would give him a lot of trouble about uh, discipline us harshly, you know. She's, I think that may have been a big issue between my father and my mother. The fact that she was so nurturing and loving and, you know, she would not, if we cried, it would, it would break a heart. Can you remember a specific example? I, I remember this happening many times where he wanted to give us a wailing and she intervened. I really do. I just don't remember a specific example. I do remember some of the examples. You know, he was always, look, I don't mean to say he wasn't ever a fair man. We had, Larry and I were anything but angels when we were young. And we got into a lot of mischief. And, you know, how do you discipline two twins who are very uncontrollable? And, right. uh, one of the some of the few times that we did get you know corporal punishment, it was it hurt a lot when he spanked us. We, he would use a spoon, a big aluminum spoon, and that hurt. And when it really got bad, Daddy would get a switch off of uh, a tree outside. Crape myrtle. myrtle tree. I don't know that I ever got that switch, but I think Larry did on more than <laughs> one, one one occasion. But I, I'll tell you this. It was a very happy family life. Christmases were wonderful. I mean, I, you know, the happiest memories in my entire life are on Christmas mornings. Do you, do you remember a specific Christmas? No, it was every Christmas. Every Christmas. And man, we would wake up and they would get us and we'd go in the front room and it was just wall-to-wall -wall toys and things for kids. Hmm. And it was, just, it was just wonderful. And I know my mother was responsible for at least most of it, even though Daddy paid the bills. She was the one that was extravagant and, you know, uh, loving her children like that. If you had 15 minutes with your father, you could tell him anything, you could ask him anything, what would that 15 minutes be like? You know, one of the things I've always regretted is I didn't have a close relationship with my father. It just didn't, you know, I don't know if it was typical of Italian families where the mother was a matriarch and the father was a stern disciplinarian. But I don't remember, and I'm sure he told me he loved me, but offhand I can't remember him saying it. And so that would be included in my conversation. I do miss you. I love you very much, and I'm sorry we weren't closer. I really am, and I'm, <coughs> I guess I can blame myself as much as blaming anybody else about that because I probably wasn't a very lovable kid, you know, and he always had to, you know, he was almost forced into the position of being the one to keep us in line because my mother, she loved us, but she wasn't going to discipline us. The worst we ever got from her was perhaps stand in a corner for 10 minutes, which isn't very much discipline, so. Uh, I think 15 minutes, I'd want to hug him and tell him I loved him, and I'm sorry we didn't have a better relationship. Okay. And Pat, same question to you. How would you spend 15 minutes with your father? Well, first I'd like to say that uh, one thing I didn't tell you, I should have, and that is that he had a really good sense of humor. He loved to tell corny jokes. One of his favorite jokes was one he got from Groucho Marx, and I, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. 
I don't know how he got in my pajamas. <laughs> but that you remember that? Absolutely. I do. That so was he, one of your so that was so inconsistent, I think, with some of his other personality traits. But I agree, he was distant. And I don't you know, I don't think he ever told me he loved me either. I just think that it just wasn't him. It w he was more like uh, I'll show you, I'm not going to tell you type of person. But if I had 15 minutes with him, I, I think I would, um, I, I would ask him more about his childhood. And I would ask him more about his emotions at Pearl Harbor, because right after that, he enlisted in the Marines. And one time I did ask him, I said, why did you enlist in the Marines? He said, well, I thought I was going to get drafted, so I wanted to pick, I wanted to pick the service I was in. But I don't think that was actually it. I think he had a sense of, of patriotism, and I think that's why. That's exactly why I joined the Marines. Exactly, exactly why he did. And by the way, I did hear some of his stories about out there. He went to Camp Pendleton, and he was, uh, in my understanding, he was a. He ended up as being the assistant turnkey in the brig. <laughs> yeah, I think he was older than most most of the volunteers, but I don't know. Back in the Second World War, there must have been a lot of people volunteering. What do you, what do you know about his service? And he was a good good with a rifle. He said he was not good with. He had to carry a pistol, and he said, "If I had to shoot somebody with this pistol, I wouldn't. But if I did." shoot it I wouldn't hit him <laughs> because he said it, he, it was inaccurate but also he said do you realize they would get us up at three o'clock in the morning to run around the playground in our or the parade ground in our underwear <laughs> that kind of thing but he his service with the Marines ended because of an ulcer and I think it was a bleeding ulcer that he had and they discharged him for that and he never got any disability for that, but he sure could have yeah. if he would have pursued it. But anyway, I would ask him um, about his mother, about his father. I mean, he was—he 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 came from a large family. There were nine nine siblings that actually survived birth. He was number twelve, I think. And there was one boy that was born after him that didn't survive. That's what I remember. But anyway, I, I did ask him some things about his father. He said that uh, his father w was very strict about children going to school and learning, and that he and his siblings would have to sit around a big table at night and do their studies. And one time, he said he had a, he had a library book in front of his, his school book, and he was reading the library book, and his dad caught him and bounced his head on the table. <laughs> Also, he told me that they would have to go after school to the macaroni factory and make boxes. Boxes? Yeah, so he utilized, he util, utilized their labor. <laughs> and then when they got home, they had to do their schoolwork. And I'll tell you this, Uncle Vincent said that, said that Daddy's father was mean, but Daddy said he wasn't mean. And he was supposed to have been very strong, too. I heard stories about Daddy's father. I heard... And what was his name? His name was Lawrence, or Lorenzo, actually, but they Americanized it to Lawrence. But a wagon that was stuck in the mud or whatever, and the horses couldn't pull it out, but he managed to get it out by Bruce strength. Hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. Pop, if you had some time, a few minutes, you know, 15 minutes with your father, how would you spend that time? I'd like to know more about his younger life. I'd like to talk to him about what I've done with my life because I would want him to be proud of me and what I've done. Listening to Pat, I've, I've brought back some memories. I remember him telling about having to work in a macaroni factory after school. And he worked a couple hours every day during the week and I think he got paid $2 a week. And he would come home and give the money to his mother and she would give him back 25 cents. That was what he got. <laughs> so, and as far as his father being mean or stern. Uh, I heard that story too, and, and uh, Daddy kind of said it really wasn't that way, and Uncle Vincent would say, you got off early because you were the baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> yeah. 
recover on your father? I mean, I, I, it's... A, a wonderful memory I have of, you know, when he would get involved in our education. We were required to know the capital of every state, every single state. By rote, I mean, he would say the state, and we would have to identify it on a map and say the capital. And the other thing was, when it came around to learning our multiplication tables, he was a stern disciplinarian. He would give us as much time to memorize the three times table or the six times table and say, don't come out of the room till you know it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you came out and you didn't know it, he'd wrap you on the knuckles and get back in the room. He'd give you as much time to memorize it. Yeah. And as such, in math, and as far as multiplication goes, I think we were way ahead of the other kids. And also, even today, when you have quiz shows and they're talking about states and cities and states and the capitals, you know, I still remember these capitals of these states. And even today, I still got that same map. It's like a jigsaw puzzle with all the states uh, on it, cut out. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. We'd come out and he'd say, do you know this times table? And he wrote them down for us. Two times two is four, two times three is six. Not as a, not as a matrix, but he actually wrote each individual table. Study them till you know them. You know them now? Yes, I do. Put your hand on the table. Put your hand on the desk, and he had a big wooden slat, a big ruler. And if you got one wrong, he would wrap you on the back of the hand with that ruler. And I don't mean wrap you lightly. It would turn red and, and hurt like hell. So, you know, a lot of people might think of that as child abuse, but I promise you, we knew the multiplication tables. I don't, I don't think the kids now do. They have a little... They may not. And as far as the state capitals, about three years ago, I went up to Idell's at Christmas time, and her granddaughter was there. And her granddaughter says, "We're going to give you a test. Name the states and the capitals." Well, and this is fifty-something years after I learned them, but I got I got all fifty states, and I got forty-six capitals. <laughs> And I think Idell got all 50 states and 44 capitals. And Hensley says to Idell, he blew you away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I bet she didn't get her knuckles wrapped. You need to ask him about some funny stories. Because yeah. I've heard some funny well, stories well, that they have not told yet. yet. Well, oh, yeah. well that's, I mean, do, do you have anything to start? <laughs> well, I don't want to get into this. No, but I mean, you, what was the topic? I mean, well, I, I'll tell you, you know, Pat said Daddy had a sense of humor, and he did. He told a lot of corny jokes and told him more than once in most cases, and sometimes he would tell what he considered to be a dirty joke. What would be his idea of a dirty joke? His idea of a dirty joke. Uh, okay. One I remember. There was a farmer, and he was having trouble with his, a mouse in his barn who was eating grain and things. And so he got two mouse traps, and he went out to the barn, and he set the mouse traps, and he set one down by a basket of apples, and one down by a basket of nuts. <laughs> and he went out the next morning to check the traps. He came back in and said to his wife, oh, well, I caught the mouse. She said, did you get anybody apples? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was his idea of a dirty joke. The other thing I'm going to tell you that we haven't mentioned yet is my daddy loved to play bridge. Yes. And he wasn't out of the specially good bridge player, but he was a typical kitchen table bridge player. He never played competitive bridge like we do. Mm -hmm. But uh, he would draft anybody into the game in order to make a game. And my mother would play, but she, I don't think she really liked the game. She played to be accommodating, which she often was. But he would play with us when we were young and play with my grandmother, who was a pretty good bridge player. and. Uh, you know, I seem to have memories of saying, I want to go outside and play ball, and he'd say, shut up and deal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you, and you, often, you often tell bridge stories or bridge hands. Do you remember any specific instance of playing bridge with your father? Oh, well, played with him many times, and he had a hard time grasping the idea of preemptive bidding. Okay. The idea that the less points you had, the more you bid was just completely foreign to him. 
But he would play with anybody. There was one famous story about, we even played two-handed bridge with a double blind. Okay. And my mother walked into the house one day with her sister Fleur after being out shopping, and Daddy sitting at the kitchen table playing with Michael. What are you all doing? Michael being? Michael? Seven years old. Okay. Michael was six or seven years old at the time. Pat's son. Pat's son, Michael. And uh, my mother says, what are you all doing? My daddy says, You're playing we're playing bridge. She says, playing bridge? He's, he's only six years old. Daddy says, well, yes, but he's not very good. <laughs> I was going to tell that. Well, I got another story, too, after you guys are through. <clears throat> this is Terry, Terry Brown. And before Pat and I were married, uh, I had the pleasure of getting to know Mom and Pop. And Pop rarely said very much and did distance himself with himself with some degree of regularity whenever I appeared. He was always cordial, but nonetheless, there was always something else for him to do. So it left Rosemary to kind of defend the home front, so to speak, whenever I came to see Pat. And I did as often as I possibly could, being in the Navy at the time. It was a little difficult to do, but I came often. And I decided after I had met her that I wanted to ask her to marry me. And there's only one way to do it, and that's the right way, and that was to ask Pop for her hand in marriage. And so I decided that I was going to go one particular day and ask him if I could marry his daughter, Pat. I got dressed in my whites and was properly adorned with all the accoutrement that goes with that and came up to the house. And Rosemary, seeing me, I think Pat had talked with her about what I was going to do because we had talked about it. And uh, they, Pat and her mother, walked out of the house. Now, you have to understand the house at Canal Boulevard. There were about 18 or 19 steps leading up to the front door in an L shape. And once you got up there, you're on the second floor. And the house was a bit of a maze, kind of like a rat maze, but not exactly. But as you walked in the front door, there was a living room, and to the right there was a dining room. And if you went straight ahead, there was a hallway that had doors with glass windows that closed. Off to the right off the dining room was the kitchen, and another entry back into a hallway. As you went down the hallway, off to the left there was a bedroom. At the end of the hallway there was a bathroom and two bedrooms. Bit maze-like, if you will. So. <laughs> I went in to see Pop, and Mom, and I should say Rosemary, I guess, uh, for those that don't recognize Mom, but Rosemary and Pat went out to the front porch and sat down, as I recall, and I went in to encounter my father, future father-in-law. And I encountered him in the kitchen, as I recall, and I went out and said, hey, Pop, how are you doing? Well, that's probably not what I said. I probably said Mr. Federico at the time. Mr. Federico, something like, I'd like to talk with you. He said, yeah, that's fine. He was making a cup of coffee. He said, just a minute. And he went out the door from the kitchen, went down the hallway into the bathroom, and closed the door to the bathroom. Well, I waited for a suitable period of time, walked into the hallway. The bathroom door was closed. Turned to the left, went back out into the foyer, and sat down in the living room. And I waited and listened until I thought he was finished in the bathroom. Came out went back into the kitchen through the dining room, and he wasn't there. Now, this is not a 5,000-square-foot house. This is a relatively small house. I went back into the hallway as Pop was going back into the living room and dining room area. As I came into the hallway and turned to the left, Pop went into the dining room. I went straight towards the front door into the living room. He left the dining room back into the kitchen. As I turned left into the dining room, he left the kitchen, went down the hallway, went into his bedroom, and closed the door. Well, I didn't think appropriate to knock on the door, so I went back into the living room and sat for a suitable period of time and waited for a while, thinking to myself that this is not going like I would like it to go. Not to be deterred, I waited for a period of time. This time it wasn't particularly suitable. So I went back into the hallway and saw that the door to the bedroom was now open, and I never knew him to go into the bedroom to the right at the end of the hallway. There was the bathroom, the bedroom at the right, and the bedroom at the left, where the TV was then. So I went down to the TV room, and he was sitting in the TV room, 
And I went down, and I sat down, and started to talk, and I went, as I pointed my finger, opened my mouth, he said, just a minute, got up, and he went back into the kitchen to get a cup of coffee. So I pursued him into the kitchen, and we kind of sat there, and I was waiting for the proper time to ask. you got to understand the coffee he had, because it was on the stove, and it boiled, and there was a little tin pot made in three sections. In the bottom section, it would catch water. In the middle section, there was the coffee. In the top section, that was an area where you had a filter and you poured the coffee, and it drained down through the middle section into the bottom section. Now, you would imagine this would probably take two or three minutes in order to accomplish, which it did. And I did not broach the subject in the kitchen at that period of time. So I waited, stood up, and thought, I'm going to go out front and see what's going on at this point, or something like that. And as I made to the dining room, I said, no, it's time to ask. I turned back in, and he was gone. He had vanished with a cup of coffee. I went back out into the hallway and captured him in the TV room. I said, Pop, no. I said, Mr. Federico, as I recall, I have something I'd like to ask you. He says, I know. I said, well, uh, sir, I'd like to have your, he said, just a minute. And he got up and he left and went back out. I don't know where he went at this point. Now, you might laugh, but this, this is true. This took a good 30 minutes in order to catch him, and I finally decided that I was going to have to really head him off the pass. And I saw him turn left into the dining room. I went to the kitchen, and bingo, as he came into the kitchen, I was standing there. I said, Mr. Federico, I'd like to marry your daughter, Pat. Standing in the hallway from the dining room to the kitchen, and I was standing in the kitchen. And he looked at me. And I don't remember what he said. I honestly don't remember. But whatever it was, was not yes or no, but was an abject, total, and completely, I don't think so, but he never said a word, as I recall. So I went back out front to talk with you and your mother, if you remember, and about that time your grandmother arrived. Do you remember that? Yeah. Now this has taken at least 30 minutes. Your grandmother arrived with the 2nd Division of the Marine Corps, as I recall, or at least it seemed that way. And she knew why I was there. Apparently, Rosemary had talked with her. And I guess the boys knew what I was going to do. So she said, hi, and went into the front door like it was Normandy. And in she went, and she had a talk with Pop. Now, Pat and others may remember some reflections of the conversation she had with Pop. I really don't know what the conversation was. But the outcome of it was that Pat and I got married. Had it not been for Grandma, I'm not sure that that would have been the case. Now, you guys got to pick up on this because you know more than... Well, you're absolutely got it exactly right. The plain fact of the matter is that Pop was not in favor of you marrying Pat. I do need to tell you it was not personal. It was the fact that you were from out of town, and there was his fear that you would marry her and take her away from him. That damn Yankee's going to take my daughter, and I'll never see her again. <laughs> and uh, whether never see her again didn't turn out to be right, but the taking her away from New Orleans certainly did. Yeah. And uh, that was his objection. It wasn't personal. Oh, no. I, I, well, I, I tried to get back many times, as Pat will testify. I tried to get to be a controller at Moisant. We got out of, the, out of the Navy, I came back, tried to find a suitable job that would give us a future, and it didn't quite work out that way, unfortunately. I wished it would have, but through the years, we've made every effort to get down here when we can, and we do it quite often, at least twice a year, I'd say, maybe three. But that's kind of a story about pop. That's great. Now, the, the term stoic is just right on. Now, a couple more stories about pop. To give you a little bit more about the, an insight, one of the things I remember all my life, uh, at one point, Larry and I started painting apartments for Daddy, and so we'd go over to, to at times to one property, other two. Where were the properties? They had a place on Carrollton Avenue, uh, I think it was 710 North Carrollton, and then he had a place on Fountain Blue, number seven Fountain Blue Drive. But of the two places, even though Fountain Blue was bigger and had more apartments in it, had 12, he considered the place on Carrollton to be pretty much his bread and butter. That's where he made more money because there were so many more expenses on, on Fountain Blue. He had a manager on Fountain Blue. Her name was Mrs. Punicky. 
But anyway, we, we painted up there many times. We painted on Carrollton Avenue. But one of the things I remember in the washhead, and I think it was on Carrollton Avenue, he had a sign to the tenants saying that he was the landlord. And the sign went on to say that it was his job to please them, but it was their job not to be hard to please. <laughs> that's, that's a true sign he actually had made. And how, old you, how old were you then? I'm 16, maybe, 15, 17, 18. Don't you wish you had that sign? I do. But the more funny story about Pop, and this is one where, you know, you never hear about my mother getting the best of him that often. But this was after one of the storms, and I don't know which storm it was, but they had some leak, roof damage and water damage. And Daddy got the idea that he could probably enhance the insurance claim a little bit by strategically sprinkling water on the ceilings of the living room or dining room and have a little water stain come through the way he could get the insurance agent to uh, agree to replaster the whole thing and repaint and all this stuff. So on Canal Boulevard, there's two big, huge openings on the porch. We used to have a, uh, a attic fan, and they would open the vents, and the attic fan would blow, pull air through there. Or I guess it would pull air through the house and blow it out there, whatever. Anyway, you could, when those vents were open, and Daddy was in the attic, you could speak to him. So my mother tried her best to get him not to do this, but he was hell-bent to go ahead and try to enhance the insurance claim a little bit, apparently now. So he's upstairs walking on the rafters, and part of the attic was <coughs> had floor, but a lot of it didn't, and you had to kind of walk on the two-by-sixes. That's where he was. He was over the two-by-sixes, perched delicately over the living room or the dining room. And <coughs> my mother got the bright idea to shake him up a little bit. So she went out on the front porch, and she rang the doorbell, and she rang it again. And then she opened and closed the door. And she yelled, Lawrence, Lawrence. <laughs> and Daddy would say, not now, Rosemary, I'm busy. <laughs> and she said, Lawrence, the insurance man is here. <laughs> and you heard, clunk. <laughs> they apparently dropped whatever he was holding. So that's just a funny story. And my mama used to swear that was true. She told me that story. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's true. Well, I thought they were talking about the, <coughs> you know. Well, there was a, a story that you told one time. I don't know if you want to share it. But sure. It involved an uncle in a tree. Oh. Oh, that was Uncle Vincent. Yeah. When they were children, Daddy, they were both Uncle Vincent and Daddy were very young. Now, Uncle Vincent was your father's brother. Yes. They had a place over in Mandeville, I think it was. The family would go over for the weekends. Apparently, they'd take a, a boat across the lake, and they'd spend the weekend over there. It was a very nice place. Family, my family, they had, I guess they had money, because they had a lot of these. Anyway, the, the, apparently, the girls used to love to chase Daddy because they thought he was really handsome and cute. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Daddy was always running from the girls. And apparently, he got up in a tree to get away from the girls. I, I guess it's from Aunt Frances and Aunt Sally or whatever. But he, he climbed the tree and he wouldn't come down. So they got Uncle Vincent to go try to convince him to come down. So Uncle Vincent said, come down, come down. And Daddy says, no, I ain't coming down. You can't make me. Uncle Vincent says, you don't come down, I'm going to shoot you. Daddy still stayed up in the tree. Uncle Vincent went in the house and got somebody's 22 rifle and went out there and shot him. <laughs> think it was in a leg, but that's just a really funny story. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but, you know, I, I, through the years I met various branches of the family. Uh, don't ask me how they related. I, you know, you'd probably have to tell me. but. Uh, there was somebody named Anthony 
Now, a funny story about this. You know, one of the things, they used to say how handsome Daddy was, and all the girls and women used to chase him. And that's what I remember about Anthony. Uh, one of the things I remember about Anthony, I remember her daughter was a little kooky. Or me. Or me, you know, quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I got a phone call from her about a, yeah, seven months ago. Really? Yeah, that's another story. Claiming that some building had the name Federico on it, and it was about to be sold, and she thought I should investigate it because we might get some money out of it. <laughs> I told her, go fly, I pretty much told her, go fly a kite. <laughs> anyway, uh, my, my daughter Julie somehow got a phone call from Feeney. I don't know how, or why, or how. And she called me up in a panic. She never told me we had an Aunt Feeney. I said, I never knew it myself, <laughs> except for a very short period of my life, and I don't know how she's related. Yeah. So, I don't know how she's, I don't, I, don't I, I think, you know, uh, Batusi might have been part of it. Yeah, I saw the name Batusi, but right. apparently, I don't know, her sister was married, or her, her brother was married to one of the sisters or something for a brief period of time. Okay. Anyway. Now, was there, ever, was there ever a case that uh, you and my father got into trouble and your father your father had to come get you? You mean, <laughs> no, that would more than happen. one case? <laughs> no, that could not have ever happened. All right, look. I stand testimony, they wouldn't do that. It, most of the time we got out of trouble ourselves when we, when we got in trouble. But we did get in trouble a lot, but they just didn't know about it a lot. Okay. Okay, but I, you I know. I think he's talking about one incident. Yeah, with Larry. <laughs> uh, I'll let Larry tell you about that. I have absolutely no recollection well, of the wait, event, sir. Well, wait a minute. It goes back to kindergarten, doesn't it? When he had to come and get you. Oh, well. When we I first, guess more than one incident. <laughs> yeah, now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I don't know if this is true because I don't remember it, but right. this is what I was told. Okay. That when we, Larry and I first started school, Apparently, they'd put us in, and Daddy would go off, and as soon as Daddy was gone and class started, or I guess it wasn't class, but kindergarten started, Larry and I would make a break and jump out the window. It was a one-story frame building, apparently, and run away. <laughs> they called up and t told Mom and Daddy that we had run away. And so Daddy had to, for a while, stay outside the building, <laughs> we jumped out the window. He could catch us, and that's apparently a true story. <laughs> yes. That's apparently a true story. That's what I was told by my mother and maybe Aunt Flo even. Yeah. Do you recall so, that story, Pop? Oh, very well. Yeah, very well. We not only went out the window, we'd go up a mulberry tree. Yeah, that's right. And sit up on a ranch eating mulberries. <laughs> And we're most reluctant to come down. It took, a com it took real threats to get us down. <laughs> but we were great at going out windows. <laughs> when we were, when we were, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, we were in that back bedroom on Canal Boulevard. And they, they would put us to bed at night and tell us to go to sleep and close the door. And they had uh, windows that slid up and down, and you could slide them up pretty easily because they were counterweighted with sash cord weights. And uh, we'd un there was a screen there with two hooks holding the screen in. We'd unhook the screen, and this was on the second floor. But it happened to be one particular window on the second floor was right above the gas meters. And we'd go over the windowsill and hang from the windowsill and put our feet on the gas meter and scramble down the gas meters and run through the neighborhood at night. And they never, Daddy never did know that. Mama didn't know about it till Babs, my ex-wife, rat ratted me out because one time I told her and uh, sometime later she told my mother and my mother all but called her a liar. Because <laughs> not us, we wouldn't do such a thing. But in fact we did it then more than once. Yeah, I have heard that word. Yeah. Well, there was. Oh, there were lots of card games. Oh, yeah. They would play poker, they would play bourree, they would play some game I didn't understand called 500. Uh, they would play gin rummy. And uh, 
Bridge. Bridge was always very popular. And did they play for money? Uh, the the uh, Blu-ray game was for money, but it was for low stakes. Yeah. But uh, my daddy couldn't stand to lose. And one time he was playing Blu-ray, and he was dealt the king, queen, jack, and nine of trumps. And the person on his left led, and the lead came to him. Only my Aunt Caroline was behind him. And he trumped with the nine of trumps, and she over-trumped with the ten. She had the ace ten five times. And so she led the ace, and then she led some more trumps, and she took three tricks and won the pot. He says, I didn't even split the pot with king, queen, jack, and nine. <laughs> and he lived another 40 years, and he talked about it for 40 years. <laughs> Couldn't even split the pot with king, queen, jack, and nine. But the card games were serious. They were playing. We used to play cards all the time at my grandmother's house. We'd go over there with some degree of frequency for Sunday dinner and also for holidays. And one Christmas we were over there and my daddy was involved in some hot card game. And this was late afternoon. They ate holiday dinner fairly early, maybe 12, 12.30 in the day. And so around five o'clock in the day, they would usually get a sandwich of some kind. And my mother asked daddy, you want a sandwich? He says, okay. She says, what do you want? He says, anything. She says, we have turkey, ham, roast beef, what do you want? He says, I told you, give me anything. Goes back to playing cards. A few minutes later, she puts the sandwich down in front of him. And uh, he picks it up and takes a bite. What the hell is that? It's a man as and mandarin sandwich. <laughs> Why'd you fix that? You said anything. Oh yeah, that was another story. We, you know, we did a lot of painting for the apartments and uh, also for the porches and stuff. And the porches were painted battleship gray. Now the bathroom on Canal Boulevard, we only had one bathroom upstairs and the bottom half of the wall was subway tile top half was painted white and the ceiling was painted white and for a couple of years my mother would tell my father I really would like you to paint the bathroom some color other than white and it'd say okay I'll get around to it I'll get around to it so one day she went shopping with her sister or her mother I don't know who and he decided he was going to surprise her so he goes and gets some paint out of the garage and he paints the top of the half of the bathroom battleship gray and she came home and freaked out. <laughs> he said, you wanted the color? I gave you color. She said, not Battleship Gray. He says, there is no place in your rosemary. But my father and, my, and his brothers used to tell a story about fishing off the mouth of the Southwest Pass of the Mississippi River. This would be your Uncle Vincent? Yeah, mostly my Uncle Vincent. And they hooked a lantern off an old Spanish galleon that had sunk off the mouth of the river. Really? And pulled the, uh, pulled the lantern up and it was still lit. <laughs> what? And this was, this was told to someone who was telling a far-fetched story. Fish story? Yeah. About the size of the fish. Whatever, telling some story that was hard to believe. And let's say it was a fish story and they said we caught an eight pound speckled trout and you tell him, Reduce the size of the trout to four pounds and I'll put the light out. <laughs> so the family developed a, uh, this into a short, simply put the light out response to a story. And this was considered uh, more genteel than saying bullshit. <laughs> now, now, you, now you talked about your mother making uh, a sandwich for your father. Yeah. Um, did your, did your father get involved at, at any point with pre preparing meals for the house? Rarely. He would, he would scramble eggs or something, but aside from that, most of the cooking was uh, done, by mother, done by mother, virtually all, and she was a great cook. In fact, many, many things I'm very appreciative of, of my mother, but one thing I will regret is she never taught me to cook. So what little cooking skills I have, I had to learn on my own or... Maybe Idell taught me some, but uh, my mother taught me very little because this was in an era when there was men's work and women's work, and cooking was women's work. Right. And uh, 
So we didn't get a whole lot of instructions on how to cook. My, my mother was a terrific cook, uh, and uh, she was one of these people that could make a great meal out of almost anything. What would be some of the meals that your father would ask for or enjoy that your mom would prepare? Uh, he he like things that in particular he liked. Oh yeah, he liked the uh, Italian food. He liked especially bucciolone, which is a round steak, which is tenderized and uh, then rolled with a stuffing in the middle. Stuffing primarily made from seasonings and breadcrumbs and boiled eggs. And they would roll this up and cook it, and it would be served with a typical red gravy and spaghetti. That was one of the things he really liked. He also liked pounded meat, uh, made with veal cutlets, and uh, she she would pound them out then. And and I think she used breadcrumbs, but not, or cracker crumbs. She'd use she'd use uh, saltine cracker crumbs and roll them out with the rolling pin to crush them, and then dip the cutlets in egg and then the cracker crumbs and. Boy, they were terrific. That's some of the best pioneer meat I ever ate. Now, your father worked at the Federico Bakery. Did he ever bring home anything from the bakery? Oh, yeah. Did I remember him bringing home a lot of cakes and things. Yeah. Did, you I, did you go to the bakery at some point? I don't recall ever going to the bakery. Okay. But do you, no. you remember some influences from the bakery? Cakes, yeah. Where was it? I, I suspect it was on, if I remember right, it was Magazine and St. Andrew. But uh, I don't know, the cakes might have been day old that they couldn't sell, but they were damn good. I enjoyed them. He liked fish. Yeah. Daddy he, liked fish. He, did. he loved fish. Oh, yeah, Daddy liked I fish. I remember one time Mama got sick and she was in the hospital for uh, a week or so, <laughs> and Daddy provided all the meals. There was no fast food. There was no going out to eat. He cooked fish every night. <laughs> At that point, I didn't like fish much. <laughs> now, what about your father's family? Was there other family members you remember seeing on a regular basis? Well, the ones that I remember the most were Aunt Margaret and Uncle Frank. Okay. Um, Uncle Joe died like in 1953 or so. Mm -hmm. He was quite, he was only in his 50s, I think. Um, what do you remember about Aunt Margaret? Aunt Margaret, uh, she had one daughter called um, Alberta. Alberta. Uh, her name was Shanika. I couldn't, I don't know how to spell it. Okay. Her la she married somebody named Sh Albert Shan I don't know if it was Albert, but his last name was Shanika. She married him. <laughs> um, she seemed to be always of irritation to my mother for some reason. <laughs> um, uh, I remember when we'd go to Uncle Vincent, sometimes we'd pick her up, and she'd never be ready. <laughs> we'd, there'd be jokes about, I gotta feed the chickens first, and stuff like that, before we could go. But, I mean, I don't think she actually had chickens. This was recorded and edited by me, Skip Federico. The recording was done at my father's house on Burke Drive in Metairie, Louisiana. I used a Zoom H6 digital recorder, five different microphones, including a Shure SM58 and lapel mics, and the mid-side mic capsule on the H6. It was edited over the course of about two weeks using Audacity software and what free time I could find. My next planned project is at the end of May when I'll be traveling to Oklahoma. I hope to capture some biographical information and stories from both my Aunt Pat and my Uncle Terry. Thanks for listening.